what I've cultivated is a sense of just a sense of distance, like a sense of that that his life was not my life, that it's not my job necessarily to defend my ancestors, that my job is to tell the truth as a writer and as a researcher. Welcome to the book I had to write. This is the podcast where I talk to authors about their most compelling stories and why these journeys matter to anyone who wants to publish. I'm Paul Zakshavsky. I'm a book coach, podcaster, and essayist. I was really excited to talk to today's guest, Yulia Shukis. We share some similar backgrounds. Both of us were raised in Southern Ontario, she in a Lithuanian family, me in a Jewish one. These were not part of the dominant culture of Canada when we grew up. And we've been touched by Holocaust stories, though in different ways. Yulia has written three books. She's inspired to research what she calls minor lives from curious places. She draws on a ton of extensive archival research, as well as interviews and travel to write about these subjects. And she's focused mainly on women's lives and on the legacy of violence across generations and borders. In her latest book, Siberian Exile, she had planned to tell the story of her grandmother's deportation from Lithuania during World War II. But things took a big turn when she discovered documents that pointed to her grandfather's possible complicity in the killing of Jews during the Holocaust. If you're curious about what it takes to follow a story for several years or to engage in deep research, I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. Yulia, welcome. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. So I feel like you and I have known each other for, um, for several years now, and I feel a lot of affinities with your story. For one thing, you and I grew up very close to each other, it turns out. Um, me in Oakville, Ontario, you in Mississauga. For people who, who may not know that part of Canada, what's it like? Yeah, so I, I mean, the main, I guess the, the defining feature of the place that we grew up was the lake, was the lake shore. Um, and I spent, I spent hours and hours. I lived walking distance from Lake Ontario. Um, at that part of the lake, it's this sort of rocky shore with round gray sort of oval flat stones. And there's this sort of really iconic clack clack as you walk on the beach, um, driftwood, um, there, and, and it's sort of, it was a sort of strangely, it was sort of a complicated landscape out there. On the one hand, it was incredibly beautiful um ravines and marshes and wetlands and beautiful forests but also refineries that there was a big refinery sort of in between where i grew up and where you grew up um that punctuated the landscape weeping willows yeah it was a it was a it was an incredibly beautiful place to grow up sort of isolated difficult for a child um difficult with public transport but yeah defining landscape feature was certainly the lake and those those clacking stones on the beach i had forgotten about those and you're totally bringing back a lot of memories actually you also um and i didn't know this as well until i read your book but um you grew up in this kind of greater toronto emigre community lithuanian community what was that like growing up yeah i grew up um and as many, many of my childhood friends did, it wasn't specific to me, but we, my generation um, of Lithuanian kids, we grew up with a really sort of split sense of identity. 
I really felt like I had my Lithuanian life, um, which took place in Lithuanian, which was sort of overwhelmingly my weekends were Lithuanian. So I would, um, I started to go to Lithuanian Saturday school, language school um, as a very young child, um, even before I started English school. So I learned how to read in Lithuanian before I learned how to read in English, weirdly. Um, because I started Lithuanian school a year early because I insisted that I wanted to go to my parents. Um, so Saturdays were Saturday school, Sundays were Lithuanian church. Um, later, as a teenager, I joined the Lithuanian dance troupe. There were youth groups, there were camps, summer camps were spent in Lithuanian, um, usually in the U.S., um, in a, in a, you know, in a girl's camp in Vermont that I went to from the time I was five to the, to the age of 15. So that was really special. And it was this really immersive, um, very tight knit community at home. The language of the, our home was Lithuanian. Um, we weren't actually allowed, my brother and I weren't, would get in trouble for speaking English at home sort of thing. Wow. And, and I had very close friends. My best friend growing up used to go to Latvian school on Saturday mornings. So it didn't feel strange. There were a lot of kids who were living this kind of life that I was, that who kids who were speaking, you know, Vietnamese at home um, or Portuguese at home or Latvian or, or even German at home. So that, that didn't feel strange in that sense, in that community, because it was quite common. So when you went to first conceive of this book, Siberian Exile, your intention was to write about your grandmother, um, Ona. I, I want to just talk about her for a bit uh, before we get to your grandfather. Um, she was deported to Siberia um, during World War II and was there, I think, 17 years. So for people who may not be familiar with, her, with your book, what are the kind of the basic outlines of her story? So the story starts in Kaunas, which is the second city of Lithuania. Um, Vilnius is now the capital city. This is this takes place in Kovno or Kaunas. And uh, my grandmother was the mother of three children. Her her husband was uh, an activist, was a was a nationalist, was a was a patriot. Had been in the had been a member of the nascent Lithuanian army in in 1919 as a very young man. When the Lithuania was under Bolshevik occupation in 1941, and there were rumors that were circulating at the time that uh, that men were being targeted, that certain kinds of men were being targeted. So the kinds of men that were being targeted would be sort of intellectual leaders, would be um, military types, police officers, um, anyone sort of with with a with some kind of even modest um, leadership role. Um, and my grandfather caught wind of the fact that he was most likely on a list for deportation. So the family decided to take action um, and they they sent the kids out. My, my family is from a borderland area from the Prussian Lithuanian borderland area. And there was a, a sort of no man's land um, where you, you needed special permission to go, except for children didn't need it. So the children were sent out to the family farm with the grandparents for safety. My grandfather um, went into hiding, went underground, and my grandmother was alone at home in at her at this tiny little apartment on the outskirts of Kaunas um, when the soldiers came to arrest her. And what they were, the soldiers came. They were Red Army soldiers, and they were they really came to arrest my grandfather. She was home alone, and so she was taken alone. She was loaded onto a cattle car and shipped east um, to Siberia, where she spent seventeen years. 
And documentary evidence plays a, a big role in, in, your, in this book, actually in, in all your writing. And in this case, you had these letters from, uh, from your grandmother. Tell me a bit about what these letters conveyed and maybe what you think they may have left out. Yeah, the letters were, um, I guess in large part, the letters were sort of the catalyst for the book. Um, I write in the book that I, that this was a story that I carried with me since childhood, and I'd always sort of imagined I would write about it, but I kind of lacked. I mean, even at a young age, I sort of understood that I didn't I didn't know nearly enough to write to write anything of any substance about it. So um, I was in my twenties. Um, we had a series of deaths in the family that happened very quickly. My my aunt, who was also my godmother. Um, died very prematurely of cancer in her 60s. And shortly after her death, my uncle, her husband, I was visiting him when we were having a meal and he sort of reached, he went over to the buffet in the, in the um, dining room and he pulled out this package of letters. And he said, I think, I think you should have these. And what they were was, it was the whole collection of the family letters of my grandmother's letters from Siberia. So the letters tell about, you know, they're very, um, they're very much about the environment. They're about the snow. They're about um, friends. They're about animals. My grandmother had a lot of animal, not a lot, but she had animals that she kept in her home, right? She had roosters and chickens that nested um, under the, that nested by the, the stove at night um, when it was cold during the winter. She had a beloved cow called Agnieszka, who was a, a, a milk cow. She had pigs that she kept and would slaughter once in a while. So there was one called Baltis, um, who she, you know, who was often named in the letters. And so she lived on this, um, she lived right beside this kolkhoz, this, this dairy farm, this collective dairy farm, and her job was to raise calves. Um, and she was very good at it. She was very, and sometimes they would tend sheep. So it was her life that she described in Siberia was very much about her relationship to the animals. It was a world of women, which is something I write about um, in, in the book because there were very few men in this, in this village. And the absence of men is something that, that, that is really, um, that's a theme in the book because the men sort of disappear. Every generation of men, the men disappear for different reasons. Sometimes they die in Stalinist, you know, Stalin purged all the men at one point um, in the 30s. And then in, in the 40s, they're they're dying in the war or in the way they're going, they're, they're dying in the mines. Now they're dying of alcoholism in Siberia. So it's still a village of women. It's, it's, it's almost entirely women even now. But there's also a lot that's missing or unspoken in the letters, right? So we don't have anything in the letters about life under Stalin. And there's nothing about, there's nothing really about the politics. We know that people, we know that there was widespread starvation, for example, in the 40s, um, all over Russia. And that's not something at all my grandmother wrote about. She also didn't write anything about the politics, as I say. And so one of the questions that I had was, I knew the story that I'd inherited. I had a, I had a pretty good sort of, you know, narrative that had come down through the family about why she was deported and how that story all happened. I was curious to know why they thought they were deporting her. Like that was really one of my big questions was, well, what did they think they were doing when they arrested this woman alone? Like my grandmother had an eighth grade education. She was not an activist. She was not a political person. She was not an intellectual. She's incredibly smart and a great writer, it turns out, and a great storyteller. 
but she wasn't a subversive person in any in any by any stretch of the imagination. So that was really one of my questions, and that was when um, I was looking because I'm an archival researcher. By I mean, this is so Siberian Exile was my is my third book, um, and I've developed a methodology. And one of my methodology, you know, my methods is is to is to look for everything I possibly can in every kind of archive and collection I can possibly find. So I write I write stories about minor lives from um, curious places, right? So I write about Algerians, I write about Lithuanians, I write. And then this time I, I decided to write about my grandparents, my grandmother to start with. The direction of your book completely changed when in 2012, on a whim, you wrote to an archive in Lithuania uh, for your grandfather's KGB file. So first, what is a KGB file? And uh, just give us a sense of what your grandfather's file actually looked like. So I had a conversation with a, a tr another Torontonian Lithuanian writer who, you know, said who sort of we had a conversation in passing one day about our work and 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 I and she she asked me if I'd managed to um, to get access to to my family's KGB file and I said I had tried back in the 1990s but I I hadn't been successful and it turned out that I'd gone about it the whole wrong way and it was very early days like it still was at a time when the processes weren't quite in place for someone like me to access those documents. Anyway, it turned out that that I could now access the the what what are called um, so it's an archive called the it's the, the Special Archives of Lithuania. I received a whole bunch of documents. I received about four hundred pages or something like that, and some of those documents were KGB files. It turned out there was a KGB file. There was a secret police file on my grandfather called a search file. And when somebody was accused, was suspected of being a war criminal, there were, you know, they, they, there were commissions, there were investigators who would go out to villages and talk to people. There were um, agents, international agents, you know, who surveilled people's movements um, and documented where people lived and that sort of thing. So there is a search file on my grandfather that contains his photographs, that has interviews with his sister, um, that contains addresses, some correct, some incorrect, um, uh, of, of where he lived after the war. And the search file, sure enough, you know, is, it ends and is, and, and is closed on, his, on the date of his death. But essentially what I discovered from that KGB file was that my grandfather hadn't been involved with, um, with really underground illegal um, fascist organizations, um, and he was a very minor cog in a in a larger machine. And in the file, um, you also kind of make more of a shocking discovery. What what was that? Yeah. So then, so that all sort of precedes the deportation. So after the deportation that's when things really shift and that's when you know the I, I don't know how i put it in the book but there's a you know that's when everything changes essentially in 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 our fate as a family um and in my fate sort of in terms of my understanding of who i am and where i came from so after so my grandmother's deported in, in june 1941 um the bolsheviks uh, the deportations end because basically because the the Germans return. That's what ends the deport the mass deportations um, from Lithuania to Siberia. So the the Bolsheviks leave and the Nazi regime comes in, 
Um, and immediately the killings of Jews began. Um, and at this stage in Lithuania, it's, it's called the Holocaust by bullets and people are being killed in pits and forests. Um, we're not even talking about ghettos yet. So in a very small amount of time, very short period of time, sort of um, shocking numbers of people are killed in the forests and they're just, they're simply shot. At this time, my grandfather, so my grandfather is out of work and he goes back to the borderland region um, to try and figure out what to do. And he takes a job as a police chief in, in a border, in the border town called Kudirkos Nomiustis. Now I call it, in the book, I call it Newtown. It's a book, it's every town in Lithuania has has several versions of its name, right? So it, it just gets translated to, so Nomiestis means new town um, or Neustadt in Yiddish, Neustadt in German. So I decided to take that Neustadt part and simply, and simply call it new town. So my grandfather arrives in new town and there are, by the time he becomes police chief, two massacres have already happened. One is of the communists, um, and it was a small, it was a small, a smallish event, um, and they were all Lithuanians who were killed. Um, the second is the killing of the Jewish men, and then the third massacre is the killing of the women and children of the Jewish women and children of Kudirkosnomiestis, and it's that massacre that he is he is police chief when that massacre happens, and he is accused of overseeing that massacre. So that is the big war crime. Um, revelation that I discovered when I requested these KGB files. And that's kind of the heart of the matter. Um, and that is the big, the big sort of axis in the book that, you know, everything sort of revolves around the, the questions of, of the questions of ethical responsibility, the questions of inheritance, the questions of what it means for me in terms of who I, who, who, who do I think I am now that I have this new piece of information about my, my history. And I'm going to leave it to people to read the book to discover what level of culpability uh, you end up deciding your grandfather bears. But I'm curious as to kind of what sense you feel like you've made at this point about your grandfather's actions, where, where you feel like you rest at this point. I think I sort of landed in a place of ambivalence with him. The place where I feel like I really gained clarity was in was in terms of my own place in history and my own relationship to my past. What I took away from the project was a sense of a sense of release from my history in a way, in a strange way. So by kind of assuming some sense of, or at least asking the questions about responsibility, I was able to sort of break from that history. And I guess what I came to, what I've cultivated is a sense of, just a sense of distance, like a sense of that, that his life is not, was not my life, that it's not my job necessarily to defend my ancestors, that I can accept that my job is to tell the truth as a writer and as a researcher. And what I'm trying to say is I landed in a place where I felt like for the first time in my life, I was standing on my own feet, untethered to the past.
kind of curious to ask you about how the book evolved for you. I know your plan when you set out was to write a memoir, and I've read that that draft kind of stalled out for you. You write, the answer to the draft was clearly not in the narrative. It had to be found in the form. Can you say more about that? Yeah, at that time, I was really struggling to write the book straight, as it were. I've always, I, I keep I keep doing this every time I sit down to write a book, I try to write something sort of straight, and I'm not capable of it. What I mean is like writing a biography that has you know, or a life story that has a sort of arc and a beginning, a middle, and end that has a kind of climax, like a rise and fall. And it turned out, once I started to accept that the drama of the book for me and that what was at stake in the book wasn't necessarily what happened, but it was about thinking through the stakes of what had happened, thinking through the meaning of what had happened and thinking through the um the upshot essentially for me um of what had happened the aftermath so really the book is about you know the drama of the book is about my thinking through i also um i also learned in writing both this book and 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 the book that came before it i learned an important lesson about writing about violence and about really difficult situations and difficult history this is my second book about the holocaust and in where form comes in that I started to, I started to embrace shorter and shorter chapters in the book that I started to be able to, for my own sanity, I, I started to write about one through one idea at a time. And so as a result, it becomes this, like, it becomes like, all, I don't even know how I would describe it. It's almost mosaic like, like it's sort of these tiny, tiny little pieces that build one upon the other. Um, and the smallness of it was really important. This is a very, Siberian Exile is a very short book. And so the editing that I did for it, I took, I ended up, I took a 50,000 or 55, like a normal size manuscript, 55,000 words, even on the short side, right? And I, and I whittled it down over the course of a few weeks um, in, in the summer that I spent in a cabin, just like chiseling and chiseling and chiseling away at it. And so that cutting process sort of, I just felt like that really until it brought things down to its essence and until I felt like there was nothing extraneous there anymore, that it was boiled down to the essential characters, the essential actions, the essential research, and then the essential thinking through of what was at stake. So it became this very hard, almost polished, sometimes quite sharp little thing. That's exactly, it's interesting. That's the reading experience. You boiled the manuscript down to, you write 30,000 words. And I know that you love this kind of uh, short form book. You talk about um, Maggie Nelson as the kind of progenitor, the classic progenitor of, of a lot of these. You know, her book, Bluettes, or um, Jane, a murder. Um, and you joke about holding your very own one woman tiny essay book festival. Which is a phrase I loved. Yes. <laughs> uh, what's so compelling about the form? So for me, um, brevity has become, it's, it's such a virtue. Like I love, I really do love small, hard little books. So I've just finished teaching. It's the end of the semester here. I teach at the University of Texas at Austin. I've just taught my first class there. It was on women's autobiographical writing, right? So totally my wheelhouse. And most of the books that I taught were of this type. So one, you know, I would add into this mix would be Victoria Chang's um, Dear Memory, 
is is another like small little book that I love. Ongoingness by Sarah Manguso is another one. Even I taught Audre Lorde's um, cancer journals for the first time as well. And I would even include that. So what do I love about them? I love that they are, that there's an urgency that is laid bare. I think that they communicate and require a kind of courage that's really palpable to me. There's a fierceness, there's a kind of fearlessness in that kind of writing. You don't, there's no hiding behind ornamentation. There's no hiding behind extraneous narrative. It's just, it's so brave to get it down to the absolute essential. And a lot of your writing does revolve around getting out in the world, specifically into archives. You've written, this is the great secret of archives. They are riveting. What is so riveting about archives? The thing about archives is there's an intimacy to them that is, um, for me, I think it's the intimacy that is so seductive. I was trained as a literary critic. You know, I, I went through graduate school. I have a degree in comparative literature. And I, you know, I cut my teeth like interpreting novels and reading all kinds of, you know, all kinds of published works and stuff. And that's one form of interpretation that's totally valid. But it's a whole other story when you're in the archive because it's it's unmediated and it's well, it's not entirely unmediated. I shouldn't say that because archivists are mediators, right? There's a lot of gatekeeping and there's a lot of, you know, so that's that's another question. But it's less mediated, let's say, than a published book. And and the possibilities are sort of open. There's something also there's something also for for a person like me who is inherently interested in lives that are marginal, right? In in the lives of people who lived in minor languages, for example, whose papers might only be accessible linguistically to us, you know, three million people on earth, for example. And you sort of start boiling it down. Like when I was working on on the Shemaitis, my last my the book before Siberian Exile was on a Lithuanian librarian. And I came across her papers when I was still a graduate student. And I came to these papers with this really curious set of skills. So I had, I was a researcher who could speak Lithuanian and French and some German. And those were three languages that were really essential and even some Russian, right? So those four languages were basically gave me access to most of the archive. And I had a really strong background in Holocaust history because I'd been doing a lot of research for my dissertation. I had a knowledge of Lithuanian history I had an understanding of Soviet history and of Soviet life and of exile life, of emigre life, of Lithuanian emigre life. So there I was sort of sitting with this archive and looking at these papers that had languished, that had been sat in these, in these tiny little community archives for the most part for like 50 years, 60 years, and nobody had really done anything with them. And I really felt because I was there with my strange set of skills and I really felt like she'd been waiting for me. So there's this sense of responsibility that then begins to build, that when you begin to see something extraordinary in the archive that's just lying there, that nobody else, that's like your secret. It's like a secret that you carry with you. That book took me 12 years to write, and it was, it was, it was a labor of love, and it changed my life, you know, and she changed my life. 
and it was a gift to her. There's a sense in which, you know, love can lead you in the archive. Like it sounds sort of, I don't know, it sounds sort of stupid to say that, but there is a sense in which there's a kind of meeting across time and across eras and across languages that can happen in the archives that's really extraordinary. What do you do to avoid going down too many rabbit holes? I've heard that this can be an issue for archive research, or maybe you encourage going down the rabbit holes. Thing about archival research, archival research for me, the way that I do it, my principle is to try to read everything I possibly can to follow absolutely every lead. And it's really slow work. I mean, the truth of the matter is that it's slow and it's tedious and it's difficult. This is not something that you can simply power your way through. I mean, there are ways of working in the archive where you can decide to to tell a piece of a story to begin with. And that's sort of how I approach that. So the question of like, how do I know if this is a project worth spending, let's say seven years on, right? The way that I test that is I write a grant application first. I outline the project, I say, here's what I found. Here's what I think I could do with it. And then if I get money (laughs) to fund the project, (laughs) that to me is a sign. I also often- It's like selling a book. Yes, getting... <laughs> selling the book, right? Um, which I'm not very good at, but I'm much better at grant writing than I am because I'm actually essentially an academic in some way. But the other thing that I do, um, that I encourage my students to do, my graduate students to do, is I write the book in microcosm. And what I mean by that is I write a single essay where I work out what the stakes of the bigger project are. So for each of my books, there's that like one essay that kind of stands for the, like where I'm working through, where I'm trying to figure out what the question is. Like, what is my question with this project? What is the essence? What is the driving force? What is the energy? What's at stake? And if I can figure it out in a small form, let's say 30 pages or how many words that is, say 7,000 words, 6,000 words. If I can work through it and figure it out in microcosm, then I feel more confident to embark on something bigger. So I just wanted to switch gears with you and ask you about your new project. I know you're working on a book about gun culture and college campuses. Mm -hmm. So this is a book that I started when I was teaching at the University of Missouri, living in you know a red state, in a gun state. I now live in Texas, which is sort of the quintessential gun state. So as a Canadian living in gun country, I had a lot of questions and I was really troubled by by life in the US in these red states. And there was a, ser- there was a series of, of events that kind of inspired uh, starting this project. One was there was a shooting at Umpqua College, which is in Roseburg, Oregon, and it was a, it was a writing classroom in 2015. And I was really struck by this because it was exactly the sort of class that I could be teaching. And one of the students walked in with a gun and uh, killed a professor first and killed half, about, I don't know, about half the class. And I found that really uh, stunning and sobering. And on top of sort of the incident itself, I was also flabbergasted. I was absolutely floored by how quickly it came and went into American memory. Nobody remembered it even a week later. And my sense is that the book has changed quite a bit since you started working on it. So the book has evolved. The book is sort of a meditation of thinking through the inherent violence of university culture, the inherent sort of cruelty, the academic cruelty, the, the the administrative cruelty of universities, and then how that then explodes into um, literal violence on campuses. I follow six campus shootings, two in Canada, four in the United States, and it's an archival study. 
I mean, it's about archives. It's about the archives of violence to a large extent. And it tracks how memory and narrative and the curation of memory happen in academic institutions over how many decades? Well, the book starts in 1966 and it ends in 2050. So over that time period. And the, the question is, what do we save? What do we remember and how? What do administration silence? What role does um, fundraising and recruitment play? in the question of memory? And what is the relationship between faculty, students, and administration in the wake of such a, of such a terrible event on campus? And how, do, and how do things really look once all the journalists are gone, once the service dogs are gone, and once things ostensibly are supposed to return to normal? Well, Yulia, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope that you have great success with this uh, new-ish, not entirely new endeavor, but it's a great project, Paul. You've been listening to my interview with author and scholar Yulia Shukis. I'm Paul Zakshevsky. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe to it. I'm always grateful for reviews and for sharing the show with friends. To read a full transcript of this in every episode, sign up at thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash subscribe. And if you're working on your own book you have to write, or you want to get started, maybe I can help. I love supporting experienced authors with expert advice and focused coaching. I help writers craft book drafts, agent pitches, book proposals, and more. Find out more about me and my coaching at thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash coaching. That's thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash coaching. And thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.